Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 34 of the Kogi Chronicles podcast. On today's episode, I was joined by Sam Ficaro to talk about the exciting conclusion to the men's and women's March Madness tournaments, the UEFA Champions League, got some soccer in there in this conversation as well, and at the end of the pod, we talked about um, a little bit about baseball. So so without further ado, uh, let's get to my conversation with Sam. It's been way, way, way too long. Um, finally joining the podcast is the one and only Sam Vaccaro. What's up, man? How's it going? Hey, how's, hey, how's it going? Thanks for having me. Alrighty. Um, so Sam's joined the pod to talk about women's basketball, the women's basketball tournament, the men's basketball tournament, sort of just wrap up the what the overall college basketball season has been this year. We'll probably we'll definitely get into what happened in those um, uh, championship games. Uh, the women's game was better than the men's game, but still. And, uh, and then probably I do want to get into a little bit with the, about a little bit uh, about the Champions League with you if you've been watching. Have you you've been watching it, right? I, I just assume so. Yes. Yes. So awesome. awesome. I have. Um, but first, let's start with the March Madness stuff since um, uh, the college basketball season has just come to an end. Um, I guess with this college basketball season with not with the men's and with the women's and just with an overall look of everything, how would you view this season as a whole outside of all the pandemic stuff? Of course, how would you, yeah, how like, would you remember this season basically? Well, I think I will remember that, you know, while we did have some upsets, the two best teams won, which is rare. You could say that like Stanford on the women's side, I have felt were the best team in college basketball. They don't get, the notoriety nationally it's obviously UConn tracks that South Carolina um, Baylor, even as the defending champs. Um, and then even on the men's side too, with Baylor, I'm like, I know a lot of people picked Gonzaga to win it. I did too. I thought Gonzaga was the best team, but you know, Baylor probably would have won the championship last year too. So I think that's what really stands out, you know, despite all the craziness of this pandemic season that the two best teams ended up winning the title. Yeah. That's a really interesting point. Um, it, it, with the men's tournament, especially there were a ton of upsets A 15 seed one this year, UCLA got to the final four, um, all the PAC 12 madness in general. I mean, we could also <laughs> talk about this year. Another way to remember this year is just, you, you know, like the PAC 12, just kind of making a, this weird surge in both the men's and women's tournaments. And I mean, it was an all PAC 12 final in the women's tournament. And in the men's tournament, UCLA nearly beat Gonzaga, which is unbelievable. And I think that team, they were always good and they just kind of finally found their footing at the last possible, at the last second where they needed to find their footing. Um, so they're kind of a special case, but I mean, heading into the tournament, especially with UCLA on the men's side, like I really didn't think that team was even going to beat Michigan state because I mean, Michigan state seemed like a team that couldn't go on this sort of run given that the, given the wins that they had in that really um, tough big 10 conference. But with UCLA, I mean, it, it just seemed like, especially after losing their their top recruit to the G League and losing um, Chris Smith the injury, it just seemed like, I don't, I don't know, it, just, it seemed like they were going to lose to Michigan State. And then, I mean, they almost lost that game anyway. Yeah, last shot of the game, Michigan State had a chance to win that game at the end. I know, really crazy, the run they went on. It's just unbelievable, and it, I mean the, the chemistry they had, the coaching. I mean, they were they've always been a really well coached team since Mick Cronin has taken over the program, um, and and that's always been, and that was kind of surprised me because it just didn't seem like Mick Cronin was going to mesh in well with that UCLA culture, just given how, uh, kind of how like staunch and militaristic he was at Cincinnati and the lack of success they had in the tournament there, and it just didn't seem like a match and. 
you know, they get to the final four. I'm like, what do I know? Right. I know. But so a lot of people smashed the Corona hires. A lot of people thought it was like a, a plan C hire by UCLA. They had a couple of coaches fall through. Um, but, you know, Corona knows how to win. You know, he finally showed in a March finally. Because you're right. He had a lot of like two seed Cincinnati teams. They were always done by the first weekend. Um, but yeah, you know, that UCLA team, you know, they were just really meshed together and they just, you know, they got a good draw, you know, after they beat Michigan State, you know, getting BYU and Abilene Christian, that helped them, but they still went through the top two seeds in that region. So mm-hmm. that is still a very impressive run. Mm-hmm. The Alabama game was particularly impressive. Um, uh, but, but, you know, UCLA, uh, they, they, I mean, they end up losing in that incredible game to Gonzaga anyway. Where would you rank that game among the games? Um, that, that the college basketball games, men's and women's that you have seen the Gonzaga UCLA game, but a game that I unfortunately missed because I was doing a baseball call at, during the game. But I mean, uh, oh, well, <laughs> <laughs> it was a great game. You know, obviously on the women's side, the final four, the last couple of years, you've had some incredible games. I'm like, you know, the review two Ogumba Wale threes to win the championship for Notre Dame. Um, that was really amazing. Um, like, obviously, I wasn't alive for the Leitner shot. I've only seen the highlights. A lot of people said it was up there with that game, which I think speaks praise. I mean, the one thing that really stands about UCLA Gonzaga, it, it was a close game throughout. It wasn't like once you had to come back from a humongous deficit. It was always within about four points. You know, it just every time you thought Gonzaga, like, just enough, you're like, okay, UCLA, this is it for them. I mean, I think they were down, like, six in the second half, and it, yeah. they were down seven-ish. And then it, you were like, okay, this is it. Gonzaga's going to finally just pull away here at the end. It was a great effort. And then, you know, Johnny Juzang, you know, even we're talking about um, uh, Cody Riley. I mean, he made three jumpers down the stretch for you. So they, Gonzaga just totally just let him take the shot. And it really was just a sensational game. I'm like, you know, when Juzang tied it in overtime, you're like, okay, you know, it's three seconds left. It's going to be a tough shot. And then Suggs banks it. It's just unbelievable drama. It was just an incredible game. Uh, just, just really an incredible game. I went back and watched the, full highlights replay of the game. It's like this 15 minute clip clips that they put on YouTube um, with where they pretty much show every single basket that was scored within the game. And I mean, it was just beautiful to watch the ball movement, um, the individual scoring, just the mix of both of those things. And then how well both the, both, both teams knew how to play with each other as teammates, right? Just the team chemistry aspect of it was just so beautiful. And so why you want to watch basketball. Um, even though you don't really see that at the collegiate level a whole ton, you know, you see a lot of t- more teams like say a Florida state where a lot of athletes, not a ton of skill, but I mean, these two teams are just filled with dudes who can light up and light it up on the score sheet and share the ball beautifully. And I mean, I, I was just so, I was just like incredibly impressed. Yeah. Just no fear in that UCLA team, no mm-hmm. fear whatsoever. You know, with USC, you know, even though the Chargers had a great player in Mobley and Isaiah and Evan Mobley, Isaiah Mobley was excellent too in the tournament, but USC just got to such a terrible start with all the turnovers. I'm um, like, they got to such a huge old, they were just never able to cry, but UCLA never, tur- they rarely turned the ball over. And that was the key against Gonzaga. You cannot turn the ball, they kill you in transition off turnovers. And the Bruce Jays, they, they slowed the game down. They did not like Gonzaga to run up and down the court mm-hmm. on them. And they just kept waiting for the perfect shot. It was really a thing of beauty, what UCLA did. It's a shame they lost in that fashion. But I think as one of the UCLA players said, they would have wanted to lose in that way, which I think is a great way to look at it. After, you know, Gonzaga was just blowing teams out. I think yeah. to lose at the end, it speaks a lot to what that UCLA team did. Yeah. What an incredible season for them. And they bring back, they might bring back everybody, if not 
almost everybody, if not everybody. And they're also adding in a couple top, what, 50, 35 prospects as well. So, I mean, they're going to be a really exciting team next season. I've seen them ranked as high as number two on these way too early preseason polls. So, I mean, this is the first time in a, in a few in a few years that we've had a Pac-12 team regarded as a top five team in the country. And that's pretty exciting. Yeah, it is. And now with this run, this will only help Cronin's recruiting too. Exactly. Now with this run, yeah. Exactly. Um, but I mean, that wasn't even the national championship game. I mean, the game before that, of course, was Baylor uh, blowing out Houston. And that ended up being kind of a precursor for what the men's national championship game ended up being. And that was Baylor blowing out Gonzaga in a pretty surprising fashion. What kind of jumped out to you most about uh, that game, especially from the Baylor perspective, given how well they played? Yeah, well, you know, this Baylor team, you know, all the hype was around Gonzaga, but this Baylor team pretty much brought back everyone from last year's. Num- they were ranked number one in the country last year, Baylor. Um, but they, they lost one starter, one bench player, but they replaced them with Flagler and um, Chamwa Chachua. And those two guys were huge for Baylor in the title game. You know, it just seemed like Baylor just had was playing at a different level. I'm like, even just watching Davion Mitchell, he dropped seven points in the opening four minutes. And you could just tell that Baylor was just so much faster. I'm like, Kispert cannot defend him at all. And, you know, Baylor was knocking down all those threes. And Gonzaga is not a three-point shooting team, as good as they are. They're just not built to just make a ton of threes to get back in the game. And so I think that's what really stood out, is that Jared Butler was fantastic for Baylor. I'm like, 20 points. I think he had seven assists. It was really an incredible performance. I mean, they just dominated Gonzaga, start to finish. And, you know, even when Baylor turned the ball over, they can, they were so quick getting back. They must have had so many blocks in the paint off transition. Um, but even the one play with Teague, he was behind the scorer's table, came racing down to try to just to contest them this three. I'm like, it was just really an unbelievable performance by Baylor. Yeah. And it's just offensively, they were hitting other shots, which wasn't something they were consistently doing the entire tournament, but it seemed like they caught, uh, they, they shot better and better as the tournament went along. And then defensively, they just swallowed up Gonzaga. Um, their athleticism and their physicality really overwhelmed a, a more finesse team in the Zags, and the Zags could never find a way to it's sort of break that physicality and that aggression. And, and they kind of got them in trouble a little bit with the foul trouble, especially with uh, uh, Baylor's two bigs and Thamba and Chachua, Chama Chachua, who were both excellent in the game despite you know getting in really early foul trouble. Um, but it just, it just, just at the end, it didn't seem to matter, despite the fact that Gonzaga was getting all these free throws. Yeah, like really, the Suggs picking up the two fouls early, I think really killed them. I know he didn't sit too long because Gonzaga, Mark Buick just had to put him in. But that really changed him. You know, Baylor was just bringing guys in. They just, you know, Scott Drew did a great job just rotating the three bigs as they were all in foul trouble. You know, Vital, I think, had three fouls. I'm like, it was really a, a foul fest for Baylor in that front court. And Thamba fouled out with like 12 minutes to go. Like Thamba yeah. got that really early in the second half. But yeah, it was just an incredible team effort by Baylor defensively. And, and the ball movement on offense and it, it, it then, and again, like this is another team, they're similar to UCLA, but kind of the steroided up in faster, more athletic version, right? In terms of the ball movement, the off, the off shot, the, uh, you know, the off the dribble shot creation, the three point shooting. Um, and they're even deeper than in UCLA. UCLA is really only run, playing like seven guys in these six, seven guys in these tournament games. And I mean, Baylor has four guys in the perimeter 
who can all create their own shot four or five guys in the per if you want to include Meyer in that um, as well. So, and, and, that, and that's remarkable given they have basically the Draymond green of college basketball, Mark vital, and then two act- bigs who are really active and athletic and long and, and, and uh, can, you know, at least they can match up against bigger teams. So uh, it's again, like they were, I mean, they looked like, the far superior team in a game where they were playing up against a team that hadn't lost all season. So it was impressive. It was just so impressive. Yeah. I'm like, you're definitely right. That Baylor was just much stronger than Gonzaga. I'm like, you know, and Baylor got a ton of offensive rebounds. I mean, Gonzaga just couldn't rebound the ball. They would get a stop two more chance. You just can't give a Baylor team who was so good from three, you know, two to three opportunities, you know, and Baylor really was average. They really, they got it going against Houston, but really in the buildups, through the first two weekends of the tournament, they really just weren't, they were knocking out threes at the clip they were, Mm. Uh, but boy, they got, they got hot at the right time Baylor. And it was really impressive what they did. Mm. To have that many guys who can score off dribble like that, but can also somewhat facilitate. I mean, that's a really hard thing to find because usually when you have all these guys who can score off the dribble on the perimeter, they're not great passers. I mean, look at the ACU team, for example. Um, it's like Remy Martin, just not not good enough facilitator. Alonzo Verge, total ball hog. I mean, Josh Christopher didn't never had a never had a knack for good passing, and yet, I mean, they had the perimeter scorers, but you, you need that passing element too. You, you need to make sure that everyone's sharing the ball enough, and and you're finding the right shot, you know, not just um, a shot, uh, which is something ACU could never understand. But this Baylor team had down to an absolute T really. Um, and it was just so, so impressive in the watch. And, and, and again, they had that also, also that ad, ad, ad aspect of athleticism and some size in the perimeter as well. It's not like they had a bunch of smaller guys, like, a, like Flagler. I mean, Teague's a pretty built player. Um, uh, Butler's a pretty built player. It's, it's really impressive that Davion Mitchell and that crossover he has, that's unstoppable. Like that's going to be effective in the pros, I think as well. So I'm really looking forward to seeing some of these guys to the next level. So. Yeah, I agree. And like Davion, which I love how Donovan Mitchell wore his jersey. I thought that was a nice ode to him, but uh, <laughs> Davion was, uh, he was amazing. I, I loved him. You know, I got to see Baylor in person when they played Florida last year, they steamrolled the Gators. Not like Florida was a good team at all, but this <laughs> Baylor team is just so, I think they were so determined. They probably would have won the title last year had the pandemic not, I canceled the tournament. So I think they were just determined. Started, and, you know, and Scott drew another guy who never really had great tournament success either for him to finally get over the hump with that Baylor team. Um, really incredible job. You know, he was, he's been there 18 years. which is crazy. I'm like, he's been there that long already, but um, great win for Baylor. I'm like, it was fitting that the big 12 wanted um, a big 12 team wanted. I know they had a disappoint big 12 tournament uh, Baylor. They were, they were ousted early, but um but yeah, you know, I had thought the Big 12 was the best conference. I know the Big 10 got a lot of hype uh, with the depth, you know, getting all like eight or nine teams in. But the Big 12 was the best conference. I think that really prepared them for this NCAA tournament. So you, so you really think the Big 12 was the best conference this year? That's really like heading into the tournament, you thought that? I did. I thought Big 12 was really good because I don't care about that. Like I didn't think Maryland was great. Michigan State was not great. Um, I, you know, Wisconsin winning game, but I don't think Wisconsin was a great team. Um, Purdue was one and done. I'm like, I really, I was not great. The only big 10 teams I really liked was, um, was Illinois. I really thought Illinois could go deep. Um, and Iowa, Iowa just, they were going to lose to Gonzaga. You know, Iowa lost to them the regular season, but I really liked that Iowa team, but they were so dependent on the three and they couldn't hit threes. That team was done. 
I mean, even if Garza went off for 40, it would have not mattered. And Michigan lost Livers, which was a huge loss. I think I, Michigan would have been a Final Four team had they had Livers. Um, so really, I thought Illinois was really the Big Ten's only hope. And the Big 12, you know, I like oh, top, the top seven teams in that conference were really good. I'm like Oklahoma, Oklahoma State, Baylor, Texas. I know Texas was now was out early, um, but I just thought that the Big Twelve was the best conference this season. Do you do, do you agree, or do you think the Big Ten was? I had I had heading into the tournament, I thought definitely thought the Big Ten was the best conference just because of how good is that top was, and I like some of the depth teams as well. I mean, Maryland's an ugly team, but at least they have an identity and they can play defense, and you can see that translating into wins in the tournament. Um, and then Rutgers is a team I liked. I thought they were kind of frisky. And they probably should have beat Houston. They yeah, had Rutgers came very close. Yeah, they had, they had that game under wraps. And they just kind of blew it. <laughs> I don't know what else to tell you. Um, especially on the offensive side. And, and they weren't aggressive enough. And when you're not aggressive enough, you don't have a ton of talent like that team does on the offensive side of the ball. You're going to, you know, you might have some trouble against a Houston team that, you know, plays the full the full 48 minutes. Um uh, but, but the full 40 minutes, excuse me. Um, but yeah, I, I thought the big 10 was the best tournament, best, uh, conference heading into the year. I know that's a, like a normie take, but, um, it did the big 12. It's like the, the, the back end of the big 12 was tough this year. Um, because in the big 10, yeah. there were like maybe two or three bad teams, depending on what you thought of Minnesota, like that would be four then. So I don't know. I, I just thought the depth of the big 10 was incredible this year. See, when I read best conferences in my book, I do this on the women's side too. I care about how the top, how many top tier teams you have more than I care about the depth of the league. Mm. And so um, like the big 12 really only had what, like three bad teams. They had TCU was bad. Iowa state was terrible. And then I am blanking on the other team, but, um, but yeah, it was like, so that's how I felt. I just, I look, I just felt the big 12, I think had so many teams at the top. And I just feel the big 10, you know, I, I really, I did not think Purdue was a great team. Although Purdue is really hyped for next year. I think Purdue is going to be really good. Maryland, they already got two transfers. They're going to be really good next year. So I think the big 10 will be really good next year as well. But I just feel, I just feel the big 10 was a little overrated. Mm. I really do. I and I think the tournament showed it. I went into the tournament think believing in Illinois to the point where I would almost pick them to win the whole thing. Like I loved that team. I know I came very close to have to them beating Baylor in the final four. But I I'm like, you know what? I'm gonna stick with my guns. I had felt Baylor was the second best team all year, but yeah, you're right. I'm like, I, the Illinois, I think that was the big disappointment was Illinois not going deeper. Yeah. Because it would have been really fun to see them go deeper. I mean, they kind of yeah. got lucky with the, with the tournament drop because loyal Chicago shouldn't have been an eight seed. I'm sorry. Like that team was better than an eight seed, you know? And I feel bad for Georgia tech for having to play a team that good. Because like I mean, they could have easily gone up against like a Missouri instead, and that would and they would have just rolled Missouri because Missouri was never that good this year. Um, for just just as an or in Oklahoma, I, Oklahoma was fine this year. You know, they they kind of sputtered toward the second half of the season, um, but like that Loyola Chicago team was way better than both those teams. And you know, just because they played the Missouri Valley Conference, they ended up being an eight seed when they really should have been like a five. You know, that's just from watching them because they just flat out outplayed that um, Illinois team. And they, and yes, they did lose to a 12 seed in Oregon state, but I mean, that Oregon state team was showing us stuff during the tournament that no one had really seen at all during at any point during the regular season. So, and, and they, you know, when you muck up the games like that, you, you have a chance to be an upset team. 
Yeah. Oregon State, though, what a run for them. I mean, they had a brutal road to the Elite Eight. Like, they beat uh, Tennessee. Tennessee was – I know they did not have uh, John Fulkerson after he took the elbow in the mm-hmm. SEC tournament. That was a big blow for them. But they still have NBA talent on – I mean, that team is still really good. And then um, Oklahoma State – and really, I really thought they would lose to Oklahoma State. I'm like, okay. I'm like, you know, the Oklahoma State was so battle-tested this year. Um, but wow. I'm like, when they beat Oklahoma state, I was like, man, and then they beat Loyola. I was like, Oh my goodness. So I'm really happy though for that squad. I'm like, I'm a big Ethan Thompson fan. One of the most underrated players mm-hmm. in, the, in the nation. He was awesome. Oregon state. Um, Alatiche was amazing for the Beavers. It was really uh, fun to see what that Oregon state team did. It's really amazing because they really had almost nothing offensively. It was Ethan Thompson and, uh, that he was the only guy on the team who could create a shot. It seemed like, and yet, they were just able to muck up these games, make them half court, play really good defense. They're a really well coached team. And somehow that was enough to beat. I could kind of see the Tennessee thing happening because Tennessee was so up and down the entire season, despite their athleticism. Um, and that was a young team and could net that never found any rhythm of consistency throughout the season. But the Oklahoma state thing is stunning because I mean, that's a team that beat, that beat Baylor and, almost maybe arguably should have won the big 12 tournament. Um, you could argue that they were even better than that, than that Texas team. Uh, and I, 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 and the, when they beat them, that was kind of stunning to be honest, you know, to, to slow down Cade Cunningham to the point where you're going to beat them is really surprising to me. So. Uh, yeah, they did a real Oregon state did a really good job though. I'm like, you know, they were very smart the way they operated because they would always get out to, like, big leads, and they would do just enough to hold on to it. They would do just enough, whether it's a Jared Lucas three or it's an Alatiche bug or even Silva. Silva had a big tournament for Oregon State. They were just really smart the way they went about it. It was just great coaching, great game planning by uh, Wayne Tinkle, and he's very deserving of that contract extension he got. Oh, yes. I, I mean, they had the most successful – one of the most successful seasons in program history – um, and then, I mean, they do, they end up falling to Houston eventually, but, uh, it, for me, like, I mean, that Houston team, I, I didn't love them that much throughout the whole season. Um, I just felt like they didn't have a ton of skill players didn't have a ton of guys who create their own shot. And they were relying very heavily on the offensive rebound in terms of their offensive play. They took a lot of threes, but didn't hit that many. And defensively, they played really hard, but there were a lot of good defensive teams in the tournament this year. That was a trend that I kept on running into. It was like good defensive team, good defensive team, good defensive team. It really came down to like who can play offense as well, you know? Um, and I mean, it ended up being that they got all the way to the final four and I was totally wrong. I actually picked Rutgers ahead of them in the tournament because I was just like, eh, out of all the top, out of all the top seeds, it's this team in Iowa that I'm the shakiest with. And for the one seeds, it was probably Michigan because they were just because they were missing livers. So um, how, how was it? How did your tournament, your bracket go actually? <laughs> My bracket was terrible. I stopped looking at it. Um, <laughs> I did get the championship game right, but I had Gonzaga. I think my final four teams were, I think it was Gonzaga, Illinois, Baylor. I had all the one seeds, and then I had Alabama. I really thought this Crimson Tide team would uh, break through. Right. That you, they're going to be living nightmares over that UCLA game. I can't believe they missed like 18 free throws. I mean, they are going to be, oh my yeah. gosh. I mean, that is going to be regret filled how Bama did not win that game. Yeah, they should have won that game. If you just hit your free throws, you win by like eight. Yeah. And um, I'm not 100% sure if they were like clearly the better team in that game, but 
outside the free throws of course you just like watching like the flow of the game like sometimes you can tell that just one team's just like playing a little bit better than the other but at the same time just by the math they should have won yeah you know? so but like ucla dominated them in overtime so i'm like it's really hard for me i'm like alabama yeah. got nothing in overtime they just started taking a bunch of threes i just it was really rough to watch them in that in overtime against ucla that was a tough one um, I love that Bama team too. I think I had the same exact final four. I think the only difference we had is I had Illinois in the final and not Baylor. Um, I think Baylor, I, I had enough worries about Baylor in terms of the way they were playing toward the end of the season for me to be like, eh, are we sure? Uh, are, is this team a lock for the final four or even a championship appearance, um, championship game appearance? Uh, it, but I mean, I was wrong because they ended up playing like the undefeated team that they were, uh, for most of the season up until the COVID break that they breakout that they had. And I, and I, and like you said, I loved Alabama. I thought they deserved to be a one seed. Um, I thought they were an incredible team. I loved their three point shooting style, their athleticism, their, their ability to switch on the defensive end. I mean, all those aspects are, I mean, are aspects that I love. I mean, a lot of it's because I'm an NBA guy and that's what NBA teams do quite frankly. And, uh, and they do, and they did that with really good ball movement, you know, and I'm really fascinated in a player like Herb Jones, who isn't the best offensive player in the world, but can literally do everything else and hit some threes while he's at it. So I, I was really in an Alabama and they ended up being kind of disappointing and the Pac-12 just sort of uh, steamrolled everybody this year, which is surprising even though i did see the oregon usc game i picked that game that was my only success the whole tournament i picked that sweet 16 game but that was it for me at least i don't know about you yeah i'm like i think if i had i had um oh i had i was so anti villanova so i had them i had um same who did they i was so anti nova so i had um who did they play in the first round i forgot who nichols, they played. nichols state no not nichols is it nichols state or i forgot but uh villanova was oh they played winthrop so winthrop, i had winthrop go. going to the sweet 16 and so i had that was a crazy pick and then i'm like oh i should have picked north texas after they beat purdue um but uh so but yeah so but but you know nova least got this you know when they lost gillespie i thought nova was going to be one and done in the ncaa tournament, but that was uh, that was a surprise, but I, you know, I did, I picked Iowa to beat Oregon, but I knew it was a terrible matchup for Iowa. It was Oregon, their starting five is really good, the Ducks starting five, and and they just, they jumped Iowa from the gates. I'm like, it was really impressive what Oregon did. I'm like, even they allowed, see, they allowed Garza to shoot whatever, so he got like his 36, and they shut down everyone else. Like, Bohannon was non-existent for Iowa, mm-hmm. and I think that was a really, because they were very much relied on their three-point shooters and it's just it was very hit or miss um in march even in the big 10 tournament too when they lost uh to illinois it was like that too it was just it's just they relied so heavily on it and it's just it just came back to bite them it's sad though i really like that iowa team was fun this year i really bummed they didn't go further but i then i was i was surprised that usc beat oregon that was a surprise i didn't see that coming i thought oregon would beat them Interesting. Interesting. Well, or USC kind of had their, had their number the first time those two teams played, if you remember. Um, so I just kind of figured that this Oregon team was good enough to reverse the script in the, when it came to the tournament. And then now USC just kept on having their number because Evan Mobley's that good at basketball. Um, but I was never in, a, I, I, we talked about this a little bit earlier with the big 10 teams. I was never that in on Iowa. When you can't play defense at all, it makes, it makes me tough for it's tough for me to totally believe in you as a team because 
I mean, when your shots aren't falling, you need you need to have some sort of back uh, backfall, right? And you need to, you need to get some stops when you need to, uh, especially toward the end of games. And they just couldn't do that. And I mean, this Oregon team, although they didn't have anyone to match up against Garza, they had people to match up against every single other perimeter player on that team and better athletes to do that as well. And I mean, they just kind of overwhelmed them. They were the bigger. They were kind of like the 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 white the longer, more athletic, quicker team. Yeah, at the end of the day. And, um, I mean, and, and they kind of overwhelmed, uh, Iowa in that sense, sort of the way Baylor ended up overwhelming Gonzaga in the national championship game was a little bit uh, similar. I mean, when they, when you have the better athletes and you have that skill to go along with that, it's, it's hard to beat sometimes. Um, and that was certainly true this year. Uh, do you want to transition to the women's tournament a little bit? I mean, this is your area of expertise. So, yeah, let's, let's talk about it. Um, I think I've watched more women's basketball, women's college basketball this year than in most, if not any year prior. Um, it was just really, it was just a really, really entertaining tournament. And am I, am I crazy to say that this year, this year's tournament was like extra special in a way with the women's tournament or, or, re, or am I just overreacting to it being made, quote unquote more in the news this, this year? Well, that's a good question. I think, you know, we would have had this type of tournament last year. That's what was so really devastating about the pandemic last season, because I think that the women's tournament last year would have been epic with that Oregon team. I think I am convinced that Sabrina Ionescu, Oregon Ducks team, would have won the title. I know South Carolina finished as the number one team in the country in the polls, but Oregon was the best team. I think they were on a mission. I think they would have steamrolled everyone. And so I think, you know, there was a lot of parody last year and there was parody this year, especially too. It was, this is the year you really have to win the title because Stanford is, I mean, not Stanford, UConn is getting Azifa, the number one player in the country after they got the number one player this year in Paige Beckers. And that UConn team is going to be really hard to beat these next two to three years. They're going to be really difficult to beat UConn. Um, So I do think it was really good. You know, it's interesting because on the men's side, the first weekend was so epic with all the upsets. And on the women's side, it was complete flip. They only had three double-digit seeds make the second round of the tournament. None made the Sweet 16, which is pretty rare for a women's team. Normally, you always get one upset team. Like two years ago, Missouri State, I think, was like a 12th seed, and they made it to the um, they made it to the Sweet 16 before losing to Stanford. So, um, but the, but the, uh, but the Sweet 16 on the the games were just fantastic. Sweet 16 on. Mm, mm. That is a good point. It was a little bit of the reverse of the men's side in which the games got better as the tournament went along. When the men's side, it was hot start and the second half wasn't quite as good, even though, I mean, what, what I mean, anytime UCLA was on the team, on the, on our television screens, it was going to be a good game. Apparently um, all three, I mean, the, the Alabama game, the Michigan game and the Gonzaga game were all incredible games for you. Uh, that games that involved UCLA. Um, but with this women's tournament, like you said earlier in the podcast that Stanford was that you, you thought Stanford was the best team from start to finish. And uh, what made you believe that they had the upper hand against a Connecticut team that they ended up not playing up, playing against, but um, that a team, but a Connecticut team, a lot of people considered as quote unquote, the best team or even South Carolina, which people could argue that, you know, they got lucky in beating. Yeah, well, I have just felt, you know, on the women's side, there is not a lot of depth on benches. The women's teams tend to rely on their starting fives, live or die by them. Like UConn, um, they lost Nika Mule, one of their backup guards, which hurt them. But Stanford, I have felt, was the deepest team in the country. Tara Vanderveer will use 10 to 11 players 
and they can all beat you. And I thought that was really interesting. Like if, uh, in the Elite Eight game, Stanford was down double digits to Louisville, a team that led, that had never blown a halftime lead all season. They had, were undefeated when leaning after halftime. And Stanford outscored in 30 to 13 in the fourth quarter of that Elite Eight game against Louisville, all because of Ashton Prechtel off the bench. She was making threes, rebounding the ball. And I just found no team in the country had that depth like Stanford. Like even at Stanford, they had major foul trouble in the final four against South Carolina and Arizona. And they would just ro uh, keep rotating players in and out. They were so much trust. It reminded me a lot of ASU. ASU operates that way too, that everyone has a role. There's no like, you know, players that just sit on the end of the bench and never entered the game. And I think that was really unique about this Stanford team. You know, they have a, a senior guard in Keanu Williams who was, you know, she didn't have her best stuff in the final four, but she was their leader all season. Anna Wilson, co-defensive player of the year. She won't score a lot, but she played remarkably defense, especially on Ari McDonald in the national championship game. You have um, Haley Jones, a top player who's coming off a knee injury last year. Fran Belibi off the bench. She didn't play a whole lot. You have Hannah Jump who can make threes. Lexi and Lacey Hole can make shots. Um, Ashton Prechtel. They even had Alyssa Jerome, who was a senior for that team, barely played this season as they had her in the playing in the fourth quarter of U of A. So I had just felt all year Stanford had the depth. They had the right pieces to really go all the way and win the title. Mm. Yeah, you could definitely see that depth as, as someone who wasn't watching Stanford women's basketball from start to beginning. You could kind of tell that they had a ton of roster depth and that they weren't totally relying on one player necessarily to carry them. Like with UConn, it was like, Paige Becker's like Paige to like score us, score the basket. You know what I mean? So it was, it was like, here's the ball. Um, and it, it just didn't really feel like that with the stand with that Stanford team. And they were just rolling out um, it stud recruit after stud recruit. And it, it, it I mean, it's been a while, it, it's been a while since they've won the national championship game Well, the early nineties. Correct. And yeah, it, 92. Like, yeah. And for a program that's been this consistently good, it was, it was only a matter of time. Right. Yeah, and the Pac-12 had not won one since 92, since that Stanford team. And so I, it really is remarkable. I'm really glad for Tara. I know it was a heartbreaking ending for Arizona. Incredible run. I did not think this Wildcats team would go as far as they did. I had them losing in the Sweet 16 to A&M. Really? I, yeah, I just felt the thing with Arizona in the regular season, they just they only have one big in Kate Reese. And Reese tends to get into foul trouble really early in the game. And she was in foul trouble a lot during this NCAA tournament run. And so and I just think like Arizona had enough supporting uh, scores to, um, you know, to help out Ari McDonald. You know, Ari was so good in this term, you know, dropping 30s, you know, 30 points almost seemingly every night at ease. But, you know, it was really Trinity Baptiste was making shots. Um, ben Duyaney was great defensively. Sam Thomas was good defensively. I think that was a big reason why Arizona made yeah. the run they did. Because they were able – Adia Barnes did a great job – of defending inside, you know, the A&M had two bigs. Um, Indiana had a great big in Mackenzie Holmes. And then, um, and even UConn, UConn was a very big team. I thought they would lose to UConn. I really didn't think it would be a close game. I was wet questioning why ESPN would even put the UConn Arizona game in the late slot. Cause I'm like this, I, I knew Stanford South Carolina was gonna be a great game, but Arizona, man, they just kept proving me wrong. It was really an unbelievable run they had. It was an unbelievable run. Well, I mean, it ended up being that they had the they had the ultimate equalizer in a basketball game, and that's having the best player on the court, you know. And yeah, Aaron definitely. McDonald played like the best player in the country, or and kind of was like, all right, I should have been the best player in the country. Played like that for really what the last four round last 
four games of the tournament, you know, putting up those 30 point performances against these ones and two seeds that uh, many suspected they just simply lose to. Right. And I know Indiana was a four seed, but that was still a pretty strong team as well. Um, but I, I mean, Eric McDonald, like, I mean, I mean, we've covered Aaron McDonald. We've gone to games where Aaron McDonald was the, was the main star. And she just always played, even when when she was, what, sophomore or freshman, sophomore freshman year, she always played at a tempo and a pace that was different from everyone else on the court. You know, she had a ball handling ability that was different than everybody else on the court. She was a better athlete than everybody else on the court. And, and it, not only did she take advantage of those, those traits but she also played harder than everybody else on the court and you saw that on a national stage and then which was kind of cool to see um her kind of blow up as a pretty famous athlete now you know because not a lot of people had heard who heard about aaron mcdonald up until the last week <laughs> you know and, and and to see her become kind of the one of the faces of women's college basketball now it, it's really cool to see because she deserves it in the way just the fury in which she plays at and how good she is as a basketball player. Yeah. I'm like, she's incredible. Like the, the thing would mean Arizona so successful is that no team has saw has ever played against a player like Eric McDonald. She is the fastest player on the court, best defending player on the court, best score on the cart on the court. And she is just so multidimensional. You no, know, she might only be like five, six, but she knows how to pressure. She knows how to strip the ball from you when you're dribbling. She knows how to help out, uh, help defense to strip the ball. And I think it's just impossible to even prepare for a guard. And you saw that against the likes of AM. They had no one who could defend her. Uh, you saw that against Indiana. I'm like, they have great guards, but no one can defend Ari McDonald. And UConn struggled too. I mean, when McDonald started making threes, UConn was in trouble because, you know, Paige Becker's as great as she is. She is not a great defender. That's not her forte. You know, UConn doesn't have a lot of great solo defenders as Arizona's. And the, the Wildcats pressure defense is very hard to face. Mm. And that's a big part of McDonald, who was the Pac-12 defensive player of the year with Anna Wilson. I mean, people don't realize that two guards won defensive player of the year, which is pretty rare now. Normally, it's always the, uh, the post players who win it. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, she'll be fun. I'm excited. She'll be a top five pick in the draft um, next week. So I'm excited to see uh, how she does in the WNBA. Yeah, I, I'm interested to see how her how her skills actually translate to the next level. Um, but with this Arizona team, as you said, like defensively, they were so good. Like, like you watched them more in the regular season. Like, how were they always at this level defensively? With its, in terms of their intensity, in terms of getting stops, even against some of the best offenses in the country. Yeah, I'm like Arizona. Like people, I think they were third in the Pac-12 in defense. I'm like this was the second best team in the Pac-12. They were the two seed in Vegas for the Pac-12 tournament. So I'm like, Arizona always had great defense. It was always like, let's let Ari McDonald score and then we'll play great defense. But um, it was really good. You know, really the big difference this Arizona team had from last year's team, which were also very good. They would have hosted uh, a regional last year had um, had the tournament happened. They got Trinity Baptiste and Ben Dugamey. Those two players are great defensive players. Sam Thomas was Pac-12 all defensive team. I'm like, Kate Reese can block shots. I'm like, it's really on all that starting five is an incredible defensive team. And so I, the only thing with Arizona, they just, they're not a big team. I'm like, Kate Reese is their biggest player. So they went very slow. That's what I thought was really interesting. It was that how Arizona was able to defend so well, being so undersized. I'm like, they would bring in um, number 32, Lauren Ware, who's only a freshman, I think. Mm. And she's super 
raw. I'm like, she is not a great player by any means. She like can't score at the rim. She just throws it up off the backboard. <laughs> but she, just that, but just the size, I, the, her, the size she provides, you know, even with Kate Reese on the bench, because I really thought that's what they would lose to Texas A&M. The A&M had two bigs, Sierra Johnson and India Jones. And A&M got off to a good start. They got off to a very hot start. And Arizona's like, you know what? We're going to go full court press, make them go over us, and we're just going to steal the ball. And that was the key to them. You know, Indiana did the same thing, too. They did full court press. UConn, they challenge anyone dribbling up the ball. They're going to be challenged by McDonald. And I think yeah. that really disrupted defense. Like UConn, who is a great, one of the highest scoring teams in the league, in the, in the nation this season. They went to so much ISO. I have never seen UConn so frozen with the basketball in my life. Wow. Because that's just the type of Arizona defense they play. They all four, all five players were committed to defense. And I think that's what really stood out. You know, even, you know, canceling out UConn's sides, I think that was really something to watch. Yeah. When you just care more, it shows. And yeah, certainly showed um, when it came to that Arizona team. And it was just really. And all you- on the yeah, watch their and, athleticism on display yeah and all you and you just need some they just needed some supporting score and that was something that always uh precluded them i think from people really believing in them but you know they had Pueyo off the bench score san thomas scored trinity baptiste had a great national championship game for arizona i'm like even their backup point guard pellington had like 16 that must have been her best game she only plays like eight minutes a game and she ended pellington dropped 16 and i think the depth score, I think, really, I think that was really was the difference between regular season Arizona to mm. uh, NCAA tournament at Arizona. It was mm. just their scoring. They, McDonald was always going to give you twenty five to thirty. It's whether you could get another thirty from everybody else, and that was that was the formula that worked to perfection for the Wildcats. So, uh, just quickly on next year in the men's and the women's tournaments, um, give me three teams in each that you think is a real shot at winning the whole thing? Well, I, I know they just lost, but Gonzaga, I think, has on the men's side, Gonzaga, like, assuming they bring back Ayayi, um, Ayayi, Timmy, and Nemhart, assuming all those three guys come back, they're going to probably be a national title contender. They might get Walker Kessler, the North Carolina transfer. Rumors yeah. are that he's going to go to Gonzaga. And then uh, Mark Few got another top five player. Uh, McDonald's All-American is going to Gonzaga. Yeah, he might get the number one overall recruit as well. Yeah. Rumor has it. As, so. Yeah, so I think Gonzaga will be really good. Um, I know Purdue, people are really high on this Purdue team who are pretty much going to be returning everyone uh, with Trevion Williams. Um, Ivy, I'm like, Ivy was super good for Purdue in that North Texas game. Uh, Jaden Ivy, he was very good for uh, the Boilermakers. So I think that Purdue team could be really good. And then obviously UCLA, assuming everyone comes back. I mean, they are going to lose Chris Smith, but uh, if Juzang decides to come back, I mean, that whole lineup is coming back for UCLA as well. So, I mean, that's going to be really fun. Uh, I'd be really interested to see how they look next season. Mm-hmm. And with the women's? The women's, well, UConn, I think, will be the number one team in the country. I just think with Azzy Fudd, Paige Beggars, Avina Westbrook has already said she's coming back next season. So that whole UConn roster will be back next year. And I think they're going to be really good. Um, I think South Carolina will be really good. Um, Zaya Cook had a great NCAA tournament for the Gamecocks. Aaliyah Boston is probably the best post player in the in the country. And so I think South Carolina will be really good. And then I'm trying to think of a third team. I'm like, really, those are the two that stand on the The women's side, I think it's going to be more like usual, where it's going to be just like two teams at the top, and then everyone's going to just try to pull off an upset. 
Um, this Stanford team, I don't, they're not going to be as good next year. That's why it was really important. They wanted this year. Um, I'm trying to think I'm like maybe Iowa, but Iowa can't play defense. I'm Iowa, even though they're bringing everyone. They're a lot like the men. I mean, the men's and the women's teams are the exact same teams. Like we'll score 90, but we'll give up 90. Yeah. And yeah. so, but they have the best player in the country, maybe in Caitlin Clark, the best scorer in the country. Yeah, like Clark. the Luca Garza of uh, the women's. Yes. But yeah, definitely. So I think really UConn and South Carolina are probably the standouts on the women's side. Hmm. That's something that that's something definitely to keep an eye on. Um, so you don't think the Pac-12 is gonna be quite as strong next year on the women's side? Would you would you say? Oh, but they'll still be good. I'm like UCLA is gonna lose Onion Ware, which is a big. I'm like you know the UC, the Pac-12 had a lot of great seniors this year: McDonald, Onion Ware, Keanu mm-hmm. Williams. I mean the Pac-12 is what the one of the few leagues in the country that had a ton of seniors this year that just um, that were really good. But you know Haley Jones showed she could be amazing. She could be a go-to player um, going into her junior year next year. Um, she'll be the front runner for a Pac-12 player of the year next year. And she will be two years removed from a knee injury that she suffered uh, last J- January of 2019. So that will be um, January 2020. So she'll be two years removed from that. And so that'll be really interesting. Um, Oregon, uh, they just had their two guards enter the transfer portal. So I'll be curious to see how the Ducks look. Uh, but they made the Sweet 16 when no, I did not think they were a Sweet 16 this, this year. Um, ASU should be good next year. Um, they got Meg Newman, who's t- a top 35 recruit. So ASU should be back in the tournament picture next year. And Arizona, we'll see what happens. I'm like, Sam Thomas is coming back. So that's great news for them. Uh, but McDonald yeah. and Baptiste are gone. So we'll see. I, I don't think they have a great recruiting class coming in, the Wildcats. Um, but yeah, so I don't see if I, I don't know if I see a national title contender in the Pac-12 next season. Interesting. Interesting. Um, why do you think the Pac-12 was so underrated this season when it came to all the tournament seedings? Um, that's sort of the case on the men's side, but we didn't really see on the men's side, but the women's side, it's been consistently good year in and year out. And Stanford was clearly a national championship contender, if not a winner. And I mean, Arizona was only a three seed and they got all the way to the, to the final and like, and UCLA made a little run, Oregon made a little run on the women's side as, as well as the men's side. And then what the stuff that USC was doing on the men's side, and they probably shouldn't even been a six seed. They should have probably been more of a five or a four seed. And I like, what's your theory behind why the PAC 12 was so underrated this year, not just on the men's side, but especially on the women's side when there's actually a track record of success there. Yeah. Like I think on the PAC 12, on the women's side, I think people just say, Oh, they haven't won a national championship. I think that the women's side, they, I think it's more on the national championship. And also I do think having no non-conference games on the women's side, on the men's game, we had a lot of non-conference games, but on the women's side, there was no non-conference game. So people uh, were only watching PAC 12 games and I think I really have like UConn still played South Carolina. They still played Arkansas on the road. They still played Tennessee on the road. So the UConn still will always get, always be the Vegas favorite. I always thought it was crazy. They were the Vegas favorite. I thought, I thought they were like the fourth best team in the country. Really? I thought Stanford, South Carolina and Baylor were all better teams than UConn. I, I'm really, if D.D. Richards does not get injured in that Baylor game, the Bears win that game. And I think we would have a Stanford Baylor national championship game. That was the one I had in my bracket. I really thought Stanford Baylor was the title game. Oh, wow. um, but, but yeah, I do think that really hurts, you know, um, I will see though, um, there were a lot of big Monday games. Um, ESPN televised a lot of Pac-12 women's games this year. Like, I know people might say, oh, Pac-12 networks, people don't have it. I'm like, fine. I'm like, I guess that's true. But, you know, you could just look at the, at the scores and you could see it's ranked team versus ranked team versus ranked team versus ranked team, especially on the women's side. On the men's side, you know, 
I don't know. It's just weird. I just think, you know, people forget UCLA was the preseason pick to win the Pac-12. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. really, this should not be a total surprise. I know they lost Chris Smith and they lost the freshman who they had, but um, this UCLA team was the preseason favorite to win the Pac-12. And I just, yeah. you know, Oregon was a good team. It's just, I really don't know why on the men's side, they just get so underestimated. I, I it really is weird because like Oregon's always a very good team. Yeah. USC, USC is going to have a top two pick on that team. Evan Mobley. I'm like, he was amazing. And there wasn't, on the men's side at least, there weren't many games on Pac-12 Network. ESPN, Fox, and CBS televised a lot of Pac-12 games this year. Mm. Um, like, they might have came on at 11 Eastern on the East Coast. Like, ASU had a lot of 11 Eastern tip-offs. Um, I, I, I don't know. With the Pac-12 thing with the men's side, I think it's just, you know, they got hot at the right time. A bunch of teams just got hot at the right time. They started winning games. Like, I, I, like if you watched – most of those teams throughout the season, you wouldn't, you, there was never a moment where you'd look at them and be like, Oh, the Oregon state, that looks like a really strong team. that can get to the elite eight. You know, they they could be one of the eight best teams in the country by the end of the season. And I mean, you would be crazy if you said that. Right. And, it, and sometimes it's just, you know, the tournament's so random and it's a one game elimination bracket and crazy stuff can happen. And when, and when it's just one game, like, I mean, imagine if, the world series is determined on one game se- on these like one, one game wildcard series. And imagine if, um, I mean, football is a little different because it's just a one game thing every single time, but like, you know, what if hockey was a turn off one game, one game playoff series or a one game tournament series. Right. And you, you'd get really weird national champions almost every year um, or really weird teams in the final four or, or in the, or that may, or that just make the championship games. So yeah, I don't know. It, it just, it just like, it, it just happened to be all the hot teams were in the Pac-12 this year. I think that's it, it. Was it feels like almost more of a coincidence than not? Even though a couple of those teams were probably underseeded, like Oregon probably should have been a higher seed. Same with USC, but like, who in their right minds could have picked the Oregon State thing, or or even the UCLA thing, given how they were kind of underwhelming during the regular season. I mean, they didn't really beat a lot of the really strong teams in the PAC 12 and heck the PAC 12 team that I thought was the strongest Colorado bowed out in the second round after an incredible first round uh, performance against Georgetown. So, I mean, you know, maybe they could have made a run if they were you know, put in a different spot in the, in the bracket, right. And they weren't playing up against a pretty athletic Florida state team. So I don't know. It's just sometimes it's luck of the draw. Sometimes it's just a coincidence. And I think that's kind of what happened this year. And the Pac-12 men's teams were just kind of due for a run in a weird way, if you think about it, right? And, and of course, seating has to do with that a little bit as well. Yeah, like Adia Barnes said it after the UConn win. She's like, would I want to face the Huskies in a seven-game series? No, I would not want to face UConn in a seven-game series. But in a one-off game where you just got to get hot for one game, she's like, I will ride or die with my players. And that's what happened. I'm like, that's why I've been across the Pac-12 on bo- in both tournaments. That's what happened. Yeah, exactly. Um, the woman's turn. I, I, you make a lot of good points as to why they were underrated, but like, do you really? Was Arizona? Do you think Arizona was one of the eight best teams in the country? Not eight best teams. Well, with the yeah, eight best teams because those top two seeds is the top eight. So, or do you think where they were on the eight best teams? Well, I would say three. I would say so. You know, I I know NC State was a one seed. The Wolfpack, I know they lost uh, one of their key players. They lost to injury in the first round of the tournament. So that's what really hurt them. You know, NC State, I always thought had question marks. Louisville, I always thought had question marks. So I'm really actually not surprised that Arizona, I thought a three C was fair for them. I thought a three C was fair. Um, 
they beat UCLA. Um, you know, they beat they pretty much beat up on everyone except Stanford. Stanford was the only team they lost uh, to, um, and they still only lost by one point. And you could argue Arizona probably should have won that game. I'm like, Ari McDonald missed five free throws in that game, mm. you know, in a one point game. I know, you know, I don't want to pin it on her. She was fantastic. I thought um, Stanford was the better team throughout the game. They felt like yeah. they had most of the, yeah, most Stanford, of the all the game. Yeah. Just Arizona I was Stanford, yeah. fighting hard enough to keep it really close. I felt like, but I do agree because Stanford was up. They pretty much would be up 10. Arizona would cut it to three. Then you go back up 10. I do agree yeah. with you. Yeah. I'm a Stanford. They, even though they had two horrible endings in the final four, the turnover against South Carolina should have never happened. Lexi Hull's got to hold on to that ball. And then at the end, too, um, like they, um, even though it was a good, a good contest on McDonald, who I thought McDonald got a great shot off. You know, on the women's game, that would normally be an air ball of her fading away in a double team. She still hit the back iron. I mean, she still almost made it, Ari McDonald. Um, and Stanford was plus 20 on the glass. That was the killer. It's just Arizona cannot get a rebound in that game. Um, but, yeah, it's just – it was a good – I will say it was, it was a good march for the, for the Pac-12. They should get a lot of respect going um, into next season, hopefully. We'll see. Maybe, maybe. But I think there's always going to be the obstacle of the time of the games. Yes. Um, the fact that there's not as many college basketball fans on the West Coast compared to it's the just, Midwest and, you know, all that stuff. It's just such a – it's such a lazy excuse, though. And, like – It I is a lazy up, excuse, but a lazy at the same excuse. time, it's true, though. It's true. Like, East Coast bias is a real thing as someone who, who lived on the East Coast. Yeah. You know? Well, this is why the, the East Coast as well. So you kind of understand that, yeah. right? This is why the AP poll, though, is so meaningless at times, too. Because the AP poll, I mean, in college football, too, I think the AP poll is so ridiculous. People will only watch games on the AP poll rankings. Like, they're not going to watch an unranked UCLA-USC team, even though I would watch that game because it's a great rivalry. And it's two pretty good teams. You know, USC had a great player in Evan Mobley this year. And they were ranked. Colorado was ranked. At the very end, but Colorado was number 24 in the country entering the Pac-12 tournament. That team was a lot better than top 20, that the 24th best team in the country. I mean, they had the best guard in McKinley Wright, Colorado. And so I don't buy that. I mean, that's a problem I think really is just the AP voters, either one, they just don't stay up and they just don't respect the Pac-12. You know, the lower tier, the unranked SEC, Big Ten, ACC teams get a lot more respect undeserving so undeservingly yeah. than the Pac-12 unranked teams. The Pac-12 unranked teams are treated like they are the worst teams in the country when that is not the case. Not I have always said yeah. Yeah. So. I mean sometimes it's like a Washington this year that's just like awful. Yeah, Huskies were awful. Yeah, like, but Washington State like, was a good team. Like Washington State had good players yeah, this yeah. season. Yeah, uh, you know, I know Utah was terrible this year. I'm like normally they're not as bad. ASU was much more worse than I think anyone else, anyone thought. Yeah. Um, like Pac-12 football gets the same, um, gets, gets same BS too. I will always say that Pac-12 football, maybe it might not have the best team in the country, but top to bottom, it's the best conference. I say it's the most competitive conference wow. in the country. Oh, competitive. Okay, said, they're the most competitive team. Not, not the best conference. I misspoke okay. on that. But they're the most competitive <laughs> conference. I will watch any Pac-12 team. Twelve. I will watch a 1 versus 12 Pac-12 football game over a 1 versus 15 SEC game. That doesn't interest me yeah. at all. Yeah. I just feel – but the SEC and the Big Ten always gets more respect than probably they deserve. And then I'm coming from someone who likes the Gators. I always – you know, I root for the Gators. And – I will always admit the SEC gets overrated. So I think I really, that does need to flip because Pac-12 is not treated as a power five conference. They just no. don't, they're just not treated the same. No. The big 12 gets more respect than the it's Pac-12. It's a deeper, 
Yeah, it's a deeper conference, and there's just not the top-tier talent that the SEC has. Really, if you want to just talk about top-tier talent, the SEC, it's the SEC and then everybody else, right? And the Big Ten will maybe have a team that's that good. And then the ACC will have Clemson, and that's it, you know? And I know Notre Dame was in the ACC this year, but we tend to overrate them every single season, and I'm not 100% why. ACC football is so bad. It's not great. So bad. And like it's the bottom Clemson. teams there, I mean, the bottom teams there are probably worse than the bottom teams in the Pac-12, you know? So, I don't know. Yeah. It's just... that we need, The back-to-pack thing needs to become national. It's just so <laughs> annoying. I, I honestly can't stand this Pac-12 slander. It really bothers me. And if everyone talks about Pac-12 networks, I understand that Carrier deal sucks. I'm like, we'll see what the new commissioner, if he's able to renegotiate, whoever that is, is able to renegotiate it. But come on, I'm like, find a way. Look at ESPN.com. Look at the scores. It's you know, there's good players. There's but good the conference talented. does need like an Alabama though. It needs a team that just wipes the floor every year because that's how you get teams in the in the college football playoff. That's how you get more recognition for your conference in general, and that's how you get out of the rut that you're currently in. You know, and there's no one who's there's no team or program at the moment that's particularly close to that. But like. That's what the conference needs, or they need like I, two teams that lose one game or something like that. Yeah, like I agree to an extent. I do agree, but I will argue Oregon football has been really good the last five years. Oregon men's basketball has been very good. I'm like, Oregon always gets to the second weekend in the men's tournament. And um, so I don't know. It just, you know, I think the Pac 12, they just, people, like when Oregon football lost to Auburn in the game in Dallas last year uh, to start the season, I have felt um, like when Auburn came back to, and yes, Oregon should have won that game, but with Auburn, like if Oregon loses that game, everyone is automatically assumes that the Pac-12 is overrated and it is a garbage conference. And there's no top two team, which I, I think that's harsh. I disagree with that because, you know, Alabama, they didn't play anyone tough this season, even though it was an all SEC schedule. Auburn was trash. I don't think A&M was a great team. I know they were number five in the country. I think A&M was not a great team this year. I think they would have got crushed by Bama if they made the playoff. And I don't, I don't feel, I don't feel the strength of competition is much stronger in the other conferences as it is in the Pac-12. I really don't. I don't see a huge seismic difference. Am I wrong? Do you disagree with that? This is a tough conversation because I think Alabama was in the Pac-12. They'd still go undefeated and destroy everybody. I just think Alabama is that much better than everybody else, right? Or or especially like this year. Because, I mean, we saw in the national championship game and even the semifinal game, they were just going to destroy everybody, right? They were just going to destroy their game and they were just going to destroy Ohio State. And and if they played Clemson, they were going to kill them too. Like, Mm -hmm. it's like the best team in the SEC every year is just going to destroy anyone they play in the Pac-12. I'm, I'm sorry. That's just the case. But if you, but if you want to make the argument that, you know, say a good uh, Cal team could beat Ole Miss. Sure. I mean, they did it two years ago. Remember that um, when, when, anyone, when Garbers is healthy, that's a eight, eight, nine win team, you know, and that could, that's the thing that can win eight, nine games in pretty much any conference. Um, maybe even the Big Ten. You know, I think the Big Ten's probably deeper, and I kind of hesitate to say that a little bit. I mean, the Big Twelve is its own weird thing. I don't really understand. I don't totally understand how that uh, how that conference can actually compare against others, and it's constantly consistently overrated, mostly because of the blue bloods. But at the same time, like there's a little depth there because 
I don't know, like is TCU that much better or worse than say uh US not maybe not USC but or UCLA? UCLA I would say I, I would say UCLA is better than TCU. I would it, pick the Bruins. It, it over football, the last if you over, look over the last two or three years, yeah. it's probably about the same. I don't know. Yeah. It's not. I'm not 100 percent sure about that, but like you know, it, it's it's hard it's hard to tell because there's less games and there's less non-conference games for us to really yeah. like figure this out. And but like the way you know the way the national media looks at it, the way to figure this out is to get teams into the playoff. You know, because that's the only way you can really figure it out. And can they compete against? the big boys like Alabama and Ohio state. And right now the PAC 12 simply doesn't have a team that's at that level or really near that level at the moment. Um, heading in next season, I haven't looked into like how good these PAC 12 teams are at the moment, because my mind right right now really isn't on college football because it's April. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but I, to me, there's, there's no one particularly close, even though there's a lot of teams, you know, doing some interesting stuff and, you know, it t- you know, uh, you know, there's progress here with a lot of these, like ASU is a good example of this, but no one on the Alabama level, there's no one close. Yeah. I'm like, at the end of the day though, it's going to come down to whether the Pac-12 can win big games on a big national stage. Yeah. And it's going to come down to whether they can recruit. I mean, you know, Alabama recruits everywhere across the country. They steal guys from the West coast that these Pac-12 schools should be able to keep. You know, especially in Arizona, a lot of Arizona talent in high school, the Arizona high school football scene has really yeah. improved over the last five years. And they're going, they're leaving. Brock Purdy is at Iowa State. Spencer yeah. Rattler is at Oklahoma. I'm like, those are guys that they should be able to keep, uh, at least on the West Coast, maybe not in Arizona per se. Um, yeah. But I will say though, Herm's done a great job at least recruiting California talent, at least, you know, getting California, getting Texas talent to come to ASU. And so, but yeah, you're right. Eventually it's going to, I'm like, you know, you know, watching these two final fours, like you're telling me UCLA is not an attractive place to go to. I'm like, that's a pretty attractive campus, you know, a story program, or even on the women's side, Arizona women's basketball, you're telling me a transfer didn't see what Ari McDonald did in three years under that program and saying, oh, I might want to go to Arizona now. And so I do think it is important that you're right. The Pac-12 does have to improve their standard, but I just, I just, I just don't think it's as bad. I don't think they're as far behind as the other conferences. Huh. That's a strong argument to make. And um, I think it has improved to say there was like three years ago. It was three years ago. Remember when they lost all those bowl games and it was yes. just really depressing. <laughs> well, yes. And they couldn't get anyone in the tournament and it, for, but and it seemed like for good reason as well. And, yeah, and it, it was it, it was it was a mess there, and I, I do think it has improved e- even before these tournaments, um, these men's and women's tournaments. It has improved to the point where now, you know, we're getting teams in the final four, and the champ national and winning the national championship on the women's basketball side. So there is some improvement, a little bit of improvement with major sports at least. Um, with a co- I didn't expect to talk this much about the Pac-12, but uh, <laughs> I, I feel like now was the time to have this conversation though, which is good. Um, do you want to quickly switch gears to the Champions League a little bit here? Um, we haven't sure. talked enough about soccer on this podcast, and this is something I want to talk more about. Um, how much of the what, what, what games were you able to catch? Because you know, a lot of these games are going on at the same exact time, like the, the, the Bayern game is going on at the same time as the Chelsea game, so I wasn't able to catch the Bayern game because I was watching Chelsea. Um, the Real Madrid Liverpool game wasn't able to catch the City game because Real Madrid Liverpool were playing. Uh, which games were you watching? And we can sort of base our conversation off of that. Um, so I watched, um, I did watch Bayern PSG as much as I can. I watched, I had it on and then I had a city Dortmund on. Um, and then I was streaming the Real Madrid Liverpool game. 
So I did not see any of Chelsea Porto. I have not even seen highlights. I only saw the two. I literally only saw the two goals. You're watching Chelsea Porto over uh, Bayern PSG? Well, Chelsea's my team. I got to oh, watch them, you know? Okay. And since I've followed the team, they have never gotten to even this point in the Champions League, so it's just very – even the quarterfinals, so it's just very exciting. And now they're on the doorstep of probably moving on to the semifinals, which is also extremely exciting, and probably against Real Madrid, given that game. Um, let's kind of start with that game because, I mean, this is the two headliners, right? Uh Two, two of the main, arguably uh, one of the more interesting matchups in the whole uh, tournament is Real Madrid and Liverpool. This Liverpool team's kind of falling apart. And you're seeing in the league play, you're seeing it now here in the Champions League, uh, falling to a Real Madrid team that seems like they're kind of figuring it out. I'm not watching the league games every week. I'm not, um, I'm, I'm, I'm some, I, I see the panic messages with Real Madrid and people probably overreacting. And then I see that, Oh, Real Madrid's now the best team in the world again. And there's always that there's there somewhere in between the, the wild fluctuations that they always go through. But with the Liverpool team, I mean, I'm seeing the scores every week with them. I'm watching the games at least when I can. And I see a team that's just battered with injuries and, and throwing around a back line that doesn't know how to play with each other. And you kind of saw that this week uh, against Real Madrid. Yeah, I'm like, you know, I'm a huge Trent Alexander-Arnold fan. If, when I play FIFA, he's always the first guy I transfer for. I'm a huge Alexander-Arnold. That header backwards, we need a band playing, heading it back to the goalkeeper or just playing in the back in general. I That irritates me so much. I can't stand it. I'm like watching the U.S. soccer too, like watching through Olympic qualifying. They did the same stuff where they just pass it back. Okay, but... I know Liverpool is just in shambles. You know, the Van Dyke injury just killed them. I'm like, that was just an absolute killer. It's just Jordan Henderson, I think, is injured still. I mean, they just, they were putting Henderson in the back. I mean, they tried Fabinho at center back. I'm like, I mean, it's just really tip, hard. Matt Tip and Gomez getting hurt yeah. as well. It's their top three yeah. center backs all out. Their whole, yeah, their whole depth, it was crushed. And Allison has had, has not had a great season this no, year for uh, not Liverpool at all. either. Because I think this Real Madrid team is poor. I'm not, I can't believe they were able to score three. I'm like, it was just, it's really a horrible result. Liverpool, the Champions League is the one competition they've actually been good in this year. The Premier League, they have been awful. Um, and they, I don't think in the cup competitions, they had that strong of a cup run. And so uh, I really thought, I'm like, okay, so Klopp is just going to go all in on Champions League. Yeah, yes, he wants top four in the Premier League, but his main focus, you know, if you win the Champions League, you're in the Champions League next season. So that's probably yeah. what he thought. But that was a stunner with Real Madrid scoring three. I'm like, I can't, that Alexander-Arnold mistake, I'm like, that summarizes their whole season. I'm like, mm. is that just something you would have not seen from Liverpool last season? I'm like, Liverpool was so good in the back last year. And so, um, yeah, so, but this Real Madrid team is probably going to get through, but they're going to lose in the semifinal if they advance. They would play and I still like, I, yeah, I still like Liverpool. I still like Liverpool at Anfield. I still think they could win that game. Or wherever they play it, if they don't play it in England, I saw that Liverpool gets three one is a though. tough deficit. Thing. It's tough, especially yeah, especially when you only scored one away goal. That's going to be tough. Because if Real Madrid scores one goal, then eventually you got to score three. Then I'm like, that's it, it's tough. Mm-hmm. Um, but and it's Liverpool yeah, you, team is, to me. This Liverpool team has too many problems to come back from this. Yeah, um, it's really I'm like unfortunately the injuries just have just dug them in. It's yeah. just really unfortunate. And like Firmino is not even in the lineup. They're starting Jota now as well. Yeah. And so you almost wonder if he's out the door too now with Liverpool. It just feels like he's like that front three that was so good last year. You know, 
it's tough. It's tough they, they don't seem like they have the same connectivity on offense. No. I mean, even even like a guy like Mane just hasn't had the same form as he had last season, and their midfield's been decimated because they're all yes. they all have to play in the defense now, and yes. it's just a whole mess. Like in this game, they started Nabi Keita. Nabi Keita just hasn't worked out as a signing for them at all. Yeah. Um, since they they won the few transfers that never really worked for them, even their fullback play has been up and down this season. Yeah, they're just a kind of a mess. And as you said, the the, the Allison just not being half the same goalie that he was during their their incredible run the last two years and you know when you play that many matches you you know you're more prone to injuries you're more more prone to um a poor even even poor play because you're just tired right i mean they've played so many matches the last two years with the same exact core and it's caught up to them I mean, even high, in, high intensity matches too. Yeah, I'm yeah. like, they've been contending all the way to, I know last year they ran away with the title, but even with the pandemic, I'm like, it was a, it felt like a slog last season for them. And, yeah. you know, I think, and I just feel, you know, you know, and they didn't make a lot of moves. They believe so much in that core Liverpool. And now it is showing they didn't make enough moves uh, to acquire debt. Obviously they could have never, uh, they could have never imagined we're going to have this many injuries in the back. Yeah. Um, but you know, it almost you got to refresh the squad a little bit. I mean, you know, how, you don't have to completely get rid of it. But like, Man City, I think does a good job. They're always refreshing the squad, always bringing in a couple of guys to plug in. And then Liverpool is like, you know what? We're going to stick with what we do. We're only going to sign Jota and pretty much nobody else. And I think it's come back to bite them. And they didn't make any moves in January. They didn't do anything. And I understand that it's the pandemic. They probably can't with money. Yeah. Guys, yeah. But. The pandemic so, really hurt them. And I, yeah. I mean, it was only, what, like a month off between the end of the Premier League season last year and the start of the Premier League season. Yeah, it's a very year. quick turnaround. And that kind of killed them, you know? Yeah. And uh, when you're playing that many high-intensity games that short of a time, like, you kind of look at the NBA with the Lakers, right? All the injuries that they've had. Yes. The and the Heat. And the Heat. The Heat have not been the same team at all this season. Yeah, because well, at yeah. least the start of the season wasn't the case because they had a ton of injuries and, and yeah, those all those high intensity games in the bubble, and then all of a sudden, what you only have like two and a half, three months off, and yeah, starting the next season. All right, well, the Lakers team is an older team, like that's going to hurt them, and the Heat team was also a more veteran team, and that's going to hurt them as well. So, I, I mean, I mean, we're kind of seeing that's what what's kind of happened with this Liverpool team. Um, yeah. And then with Real Madrid, it's been all over the place with guys coming in and out of the lineup. I mean, Sergio Ramos wasn't playing in this game, but it didn't seem to matter because, you know, when Vinicius is that talent, when you have a guy that talented, Vinicius Jr., like you can overcome some crap, basically. And yeah, that's kind of what I saw with that team. And I, their midfield play when it's on has could potentially be what like are arguably the best in the world given how good Cruz and Modric is again i don't watch real madrid every week it's hard to watch spanish leagues here spanish yeah. league games here but mm-hmm. it just seemed like their midfield play was playing so well in that game and if that's the, if that's going to be the case and they get ramos back in the back then you know they could they could beat chelsea they could just you know beat them because that chelsea team is not inconsistent but they're not the most explosive offensive team, despite the fact that the roster says otherwise. They're a very structured team. They're a very uh, possession-oriented team since Thomas Tuchel's taken over, and you know that. You know, and, and and that's the safer approach when you are in a Champions League format like this, right? But at the same time, 
um, that, you know, defensive possession approach, but at the same time, like Real Madrid can open the game open with the, with the skill and the talent that they have regardless. Yeah. I mean, Benzema's had a great Champions League too. Uh, Benzema's been very mm-hmm. good for them. Yes. Um, it's really hard. It's really unbelievable though with Real Madrid's end. They were this close to not even making out of the group. They were going to be out of Europe completely, Real Madrid. And then now they're in, they're on the verge of the semifinals. It's really unbelievable. Zidane was going to get fired like any second now. And yeah. you know, they were able to escape out of that group with the, um, the result against Gladbach on the final day. And it, it really has been impressive what they have done. But, you know, I, I would argue though, the La Liga has been you know, really overrated. It's been a bad La Liga season. I like think, even at Ad, Atleti's yeah. been bad. Barca's average. I'm like, I will say the the it is a concern going forward. I don't think La Liga is that great. They're probably it's the not, worst. No, it's been a I'm like really France. Year I'm, for them. Yeah, I'm like France is always weak. I'm like uh, with it's really just PSG. Although Lille is having a great season, they mm-hmm. they're contending for the title. Um, but yeah, La Liga's been they are really like far, but they have really fallen. I think these last couple of years. And I don't even know if it's underrated, if that's an over, if that's an overrated. Oh league. yeah, no. Because I think it's people fair. are actually on the scent that like, okay, La Liga is yeah. very bad this year. And yeah, I think that that ta- that chatter started to happen around when Chelsea was beaten up on Atletico Madrid. And it was yes. Like, okay, so the the fifth fourth place Premier League team is beating up on yes. the first place La Liga team. Like, what is happening right now? Yeah. And La Liga just isn't isn't super strong. Like that Atleti team had a really disappointing performance in the Champions League. They they should have played better and should have put up yeah. a, a harder fight against a Chelsea team that, you know, changed their manager just halfway through the season, <laughs> you know? Yes. So like, like who have their own struggles yeah. in front of goal. They can't, they struggle to score a couple of goals a game, Chelsea. So, yeah. 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 Know. They do struggle. They do struggle to score. Um, they yeah. dominate possession. They play excellent defense. Yes. Uh, outside of the West Brom game, they've been arguably the best defensive team and, and goal prevention team in the world. Yeah. Like their defense, which is, is amazing. Incredible. Yeah, because here's where they started the season. Like we couldn't. That's all we talked about was the back, and now it's like the best. It's best. It's really crazy that turnaround with Tuchel done. Yeah, yeah, and even they were showing signs with Lampard, and then it kind of fell apart when when Lampard was falling apart. And they bring in Tuchel, and he brings in. We I guess we can just do the Chelsea Porto conversation right now. He brings in this um, formula that's just so structured, and with five with with five in the back, they can transition to the offense a little more smoothly. And it, it just seems like Tuchel's brought, has brought a sort of a structure that they were missing in the Lampard era. In the Lampard era, it was just, it was more ego control. It was less, less tactical. Um, it was a lot more free flowing, but, but with Tuchel, it's, there's, there's oriented goals. There's more structure. And there's a, even though they're rotating guys in and out of the lineup, like wildfire similar to what Lampard was doing, but they're doing it in very calculated ways. And that's kind of what this team was missing given, given that they have so many different players and types of players on this team. And now that they have that it's, it's, I mean, it's been, it's turned into wonderful results for the most part. Yeah. I'm like, it really is incredible what uh, Tuchel's. I mean, I will say Lampard was an inexperienced hire when Chelsea, I, you know, I thought Lampard probably should have given more time. But, you know, I don't like how Chelsea goes through managers every year and a half. No, I, I find that right. annoying. But I do like I do like Tuchel, though, a lot. I think he was – I think he was the right man. If They just they just have to score a couple of goals. I'm like, really, they don't have to score five. They just got to score one or two yeah. and then just defend. And that's and that's what they, that's been the formula, you know, even in this Premier League run, too. I'm like, they're, they're you know, probably going to get top four Chelsea again, which would be remarkable considering what that team was. 
Mm. Um, and so it really is incredible. Um, you know, Mesa Mount's goal was great. That was a great first goal. I think Mesa Mount has been really good for them. But it is tricky, though. With all, It really has been interesting to see him rotate all the attacking players. Um, you know, Havertz, you know, you know, and if, you know, even though he's playing Havertz, sometimes it's a false nine, which I, oh, oh my God, no. But, you know, it still, it still works out, though. I'm like Havertz, Mount, um, you know, Werner, eh, Timo Werner's been okay. But really, I'm mean, considering the, all the, um, the lack of goals they have gotten. I'm like, it's really been impressive that Chelsea's been able to piece together a semifinal run. I think it's been over the moon what Chelsea has done. Because they were in a winnable group. They were in a very easy group, Chelsea. I thought they would lose to Atletico. I really thought Atleti would beat them. You know, they have Luis Suarez. They still have the same good goalkeeper in Oblak. I know they still have a decent defense, decent midfield. And and um, no, Chelsea, you know, shut them down. So I think um, I, I think if Chelsea were to get Real Madrid, I think Chelsea would beat them. Not You don't think so? I don't know. I think Chelsea it, would beat them. I, I don't trust Real Madrid. I, I, don't I don't think anyone should trust Real Madrid. You, I think you're totally right in that. But it's just like when you look at this Chelsea team, do you see Champions League final contender? <laughs> you, hey, know? you just got you just got to get a good draw. And they have gotten a good, good draw. draw. They got lucky in that they went up against Porto, which they're just more talented than Porto. Yes. From watching that game, Porto works hard. Credit to them. They always seem to make it to the quarterfinals every year. Um, but this Chelsea team just better just like i mean just from watching that game um and then uh if they go up against real madrid you know it looks that's like a toss-up i really it. do think that's a, that's a toss-up it'll be the first time they've ever gone against each other in the champions league which is very strange because usually it's like a barcelona matchup or some other Premier league that team mm-hmm. they go against or psg i mean they had this ridiculous run of playing psg yes. in the champions league every single year and losing <laughs> every single year um but this year I mean, they go against this weird Real Madrid team that doesn't really have a structure, that doesn't really have a plan every every week. Um, they, they got a real chance of winning. They I, they really do. I, and it sounds crazy that, like, if you tell me this team was a real Champions League final contender, I would have said you're nuts. You know, like you're nuts because you know, I, given how they were, you know, blown out the floor by Bayern just a year ago. Like, I don't know. Like Bayern and PSG are probably the two best teams in this tournament, and uh, they're playing against each other. <laughs> Or I still, it's, I, it's those three. Yeah, it's I still like Man City. It, it's yeah. those three, right? But Man City's always disappointed in the Champions League. It's hard to really trust them in this competition, right? So, I don't know. I look at those three teams are probably the three best teams, but, you know, Chelsea got the lucky draw. They may just end up being able to sneak into the final and to get lucky. It's a one-game Champions League final. If they get lucky, they could win the whole thing. And that would be crazy, but it's it's on the table at least. So. Definitely. You know, especially the way they defend against anybody. And, it, and it's been consistent across the board. Like they had this run against um, at one point, they had this run against, I believe they were playing, they played Liverpool United and Atletico in like a 90 stretch. And they gave up no goals or, or one goal or something like that. And it was just this incredible defensive display. So um, yeah, Chelsea's just a really fascinating team when it comes to the champions league uh, whole situation. Do you want to talk about a little bit on the other side of the bracket a little bit? Uh, with that Bayern PSG game that, that I missed because of the Chelsea game, like, well, like what the heck happened in that? What was going on in that game? Well, first of all, it was snowing, which I absolutely love that it was snowing. Um, <laughs> but yeah, boy, uh, Mauricio Pochettino, another guy who came in midway through the season um, at PSG, just an incredible gameplay. You know, he's like, we're just going to counterattack. I um, mean, Bayern had 31 shots in that game. It tied a season high in all competitions for Bayern. 
They had 15 corners and just PSG just were able to just do enough. You know, Kylian Mbappe, that third goal was amazing. It was just a great finish. He totally froze Neuer. He just went right through the legs of Boateng. Uh, but it was really impressive from PSG. I'm like, they just cashed in on their opportunities and Bayern didn't. And I understand Bayern does not have Lewandowski. So I'm like, that is a problem for Bayern. I'm like, they did get, a, they did get Chopu Moting scored and Muller scored. But, you know, you got to cash in on these opportunities. And, you know, and you got to credit Kaylor Navas. You know, Navas is one of the best goalkeepers in the world as well mm. uh, for PSG. He's done well. It's going to be really interesting. Though, it's 3-2 going to <laughs> Paris. And Bayern, and PSG has three away goals. I'm like, PSG, if they just score, like, one goal, I'm like, eh. you know, Bayern is in trouble. I don't know. Because even if they tie, it's not good enough on the away goals. No, they got to score two. They gotta, they gotta, yeah, they got to win two nothing without Lewandowski. I'm like, it's going to be a problem for Bayern. I don't know if they have the goals in them. And Schuler went off really early. They had to bring in Boateng. And then Boateng almost got a second yellow card at the end of the game. They didn't give it to him. But, um. But yeah, I'm mean, at this PSG. I'm like when Neymar, when Neymar and Mbappe are together, I'm like they're still very good. I'm like they're still in top ten uh, players in the world. So well, they finally yeah, got was, the monkey off their back and made an actual run last year, and and that yes, well that that that'll help them a little bit in terms of my confidence in them moving forward against this Bayern team that hasn't had the same season as last year. Last year they were easily the best team in the Champions yes, League. It wasn't by far. even close. Yes. This year it's kind of up in the air we're still kind of like we talked about a little bit earlier like it's kind of up in the air like who's going to win this competition but um i mean with this Bayern team you know no Lewandowski, that's going to hurt i mean he's what probably the best striker in the world at the pure striker in the world at the moment um despite his age so i mean they got yeah it'll be interesting to see like who comes out of that group because i'm Bayern down i mean to win two nothing to shut out psg that sounds optimistic you guys were twice on navas I mean, they did that in the first leg, but that's not, that's hard to do with no Lewandowski. Yeah. You know, it's going to be difficult. I'm like, you know, I'm like, I'm like, Bayern had like 60% possession. And Mbappe I mean, PS- can't score on the other end, you know? He yeah. Or Neymar, they can't score. Yeah. It's good. It's going to be tough. It's going to be really tough for Bayern. Like, I, again, I would not be surprised if Bayern wins and moves, if Bayern comes back to advance, but it's going to be tough now. I really thought Bayern, I thought Bayern was the best team. I really thought, I was hoping we were going to get Bayern Man City in the final. But it could be, you know, it's the it's, Champions League. Yeah, Champions League's all over the place. That's what yes about those things, and the away goal stuff is really stupid. But that's the rule, and that's how they play it. Um, you would change it? I just don't understand why an away goal should be important matters enough. more. Yeah, it just doesn't make any sense. It's it's kind of it's a funny wrinkle, but it's also totally logical and really unfair to be totally honest. And especially in this environment where you know, the, the crowds aren't affecting anything <laughs> because yeah. in Europe, I mean, they, they had fans for a second and then they got rid of them immediately because Europe's totally botched their whole COVID process, but that's a whole other yeah. Um, so it, you're, you're ending up like, like Chelsea and Porto, they're going to have to play both those games, both of those games on neutral site. Yeah. So there's like, so the away goals mean absolutely nothing then because you're just playing twice. So when you're technically the away team, you're going to, I don't know, it's weird. So Chelsea as technically the away team, one, two, nothing. So yeah. I guess they're almost definitely going to move on now unless they lose two, nothing to Porto in the next game. But that's probably, barring a that's right card, that's yeah. probably not going to happen, especially how good they are defensively and the fact that they're just playing in the same side again. Um even if they went back, even if they, yeah, again, they're not even going back to Stanford Bridge, and we're pretty confident that. But anyway, like, 
when there's no crowds involved, it makes it even less logical. And I don't know. It just doesn't make any sense to me. Like, can, can I did, you actually explain, like, why that should be a thing, the whole Wagle thing? I don't get it. I don't know either. Um, my friend is so anti-away goals. He thinks it's the dumbest rule ever. He absolutely can't stand it when we get to the knockout stage. But, you know, it does add a lot of drama, though. I'm like, it, it, it does add drama. I mean, that is I the like one the benefit. I think I'm for the aggregate. I think it's I am interesting. too. Um, they probably should get away the awake. I hope though that they will get rid of it. I I, I do think it would, I also think it would be more exciting. You know, it seems like Porto advanced. I think that was what was was that four, I think it was four four all, but Porto had the away goals. Yeah. In, so uh, in like, Turin. Yeah. So stupid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so. Wow. I didn't I have never heard a, an argument for it. Um, but let's talk about the City Dortmund game. Did you see the goal that they disallowed in this game? Yes, I what I a travesty. Really- what a travesty, travesty of a call. Oh. You know, with VAR, they've been told to not blow the whistle until it crosses the goal line. He could have still called a foul if he just let it cross the goal line. Yeah. And then they could have reviewed it. But he called it well in the – you know, but they'll do anything to protect goalkeepers. They'll do anything. So the moment they see a goalkeeper go down, they just automatically assume it's a foul on the offensive player, on the attacking player, and then they, they call point. a foul. But um, it was just honestly, again, another playing out of the back. We got to ban it. Um, It was just, you know, Ederson just whiffed. He just misplayed the ball. And and that's a huge goal, especially what ended up happening at the end with Foden getting the goal at the end for Man City after Royce tied it. Um, And that's a big deficit for Dortmund going home. Um, Even though they did get at least one away goal, it's going to be hard to shut out Man City. That's going to be difficult to do um, with the way they're playing. Yeah, one nothing would actually get it done, but but that's yeah. again that that requires you to shut out Man City. Shut Man City, which is hard. They which can score hard. a goal. I I don't you know with Holland they can score a goal anytime. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And Royce getting a goal was good, but but again, like, Dorman Dorman crumbling at the end. It's a constant theme. Dorman keeps crumbling at the end. But I mean, the you can't hold on. Is- yeah, like I said earlier, like the city team keeps on crumbling in the Champions League, though. I mean, they, that's true. Last year they lost. What was it? They lost the Lille in the in the quarterfinals. Am I right? From my memory, and they seemed like a team that was like a real contender in the Champions. Was it Lille or was it? They lost to Real Madrid in Manchester, right? Oh no, was no, it? No, that was two it? years. I think that was Barcelona. They lost to Barcelona last year, and then Barcelona got crushed in the quarters. City did. Yeah, City lost to Barca because. City had the they played it in the back when they played it at uh, Manchester and Barca scored on them and then they never were able to recover. Mm. I think, right? That's I a, think so. My memory is lost to a smaller club um in the Champions League. It was like it was it was like an RB situation. Um I don't know, I'm not 100 percent sure. But uh this is something I should probably know. But anyway, uh, like that Bellingham goal, that should have been a goal. And yeah, that should have been a goal. It was ridiculous. It, it was like, and, and we can get, I don't want to get into the whole VR, VAR thing. That's a whole other podcast. And VAR has tons of problems, even though I understand the idea of it. Um, but I, but when it comes to that, it, I mean, this is, this is awful because it's like, if, you know, Byron score, get that second goal there, they have a really good chance of moving on um, and, and upsetting this really good city team, if that's the case. And, you know, like, you know, Bayern deserve like Dorman deserved the breaks, especially when they're probably going to lose Halan this summer and not be quite yeah. a smart team heading into the next year. I mean, they always find guys out of the woodworks. I don't know how they do it. Um, they're just a prospect machine, but still, like, 
I mean, if they're going to make a run the Champions League, this is probably the year when there isn't a clear favorite. Um, and they might even a- avoid Bayern, which is good for them, <laughs> just for the general yeah. reason they know each other so well. Um, if they played PSG, theoretically, if they were, if they could say they get that goal and they play PSG, they get by City in the home, in the, in the home side of the leg, um, they would have a chance. You know, it, they would be a pretty good contender to potentially upset that PSG team, especially when that the line there, I mean, PSG's lineups are guys are coming in and out all the time because of injuries and, you know, and it's, and I don't say it's a mess over there, but it's, it's always, they're, they're always in flux and you could, you could potentially see a a Dortmund team potentially, um, you know, pulling out the upset given how much talent they have, especially at the front um, of that lineup. And, you know, I mean, this is, if they were going to win the champions league, this was going to be the year. Yeah, not last year, not two years ago, not next year, this year, right? So yeah. just given their timeline, but I don't know. They this goal gets disallowed, and here they are down two one, probably not being able to move on. I, would you say actually, out of all these ties, all, all four of these ties, is there any shot that the, the the team losing out of all the teams that are quote unquote losing the tie, like which one is the best chance to move on, or do you think this is all pretty much like close and shut? Yeah, well, I think Chelsea's through. I don't think there's any way Porto comes back. Um, I still like Bayern. I don't know why. I still, even without Lewandowski, I still think that's a possibility. Um, you know, they just had so many chances they just couldn't score, I'm like, in yesterday. Um, I still think Bayern has a possibility. Um, I just think, I really like this Man City team. I know, they lost to Lyon in the quarterfinals last season. Yeah, um, I, I got it right. Though. Yes, Leon. And so um, I, almost uh, got it right. I just I still like this Man City team. I still think this is a different Man City. I'm not going to look I'm not going to dwell too much on what they've done in the past. Um, last year was just such a weird season with it being a, just a one off last year. It was a weird year last year. But um, yeah, I think Man City is going to be Dortmund. You know, I just you know, this Dortmund team is really struggling in the Bundesliga. They might not even get into the top four. Valley, I you know, I just feel like this is a team in transition until Marco uh, Rose comes in um, at the start of next season. Holland might be out the door. I just feel like there's too much noise around this Dortmund team where I, I just don't, I just don't see them coming back. And then what's the other time? Oh, and Real Madrid, Liverpool. Um, yeah, I still like Liverpool. I just don't, tr- I don't trust either team. I don't trust Real Madrid. <laughs> um, but um, I still, you know, I, Liverpool has just a history of coming back. That's the only reason why it's in my mind. It's just Liverpool has a history of coming back, but that was a much different team when they won it two years ago than this, this Liverpool one. Liverpool team's kind of a mess. I, yeah, I, well, mess. yeah, I just think Liverpool, just the injuries in the back, I think it's just going to be too much. Yeah, to especially with the week, week, a weak turnaround too. Like, yeah, playing again. It's and, tough. Yeah, it's, it's, I think it's too quick of a turnaround for them to actually to realistically see them move on. Um, yeah, uh, that's what we got on the Champions League. Do you have any? Other note, do you have any baseball notes in any baseball things you want to get off your chest? Do you have any uh, Premier League things you want to get off your chest? Now's the time. MLB, they need to ban the extra inning rule. Of really? The on second. They need to get rid of it. Why? I absolutely hate it. I think it's, I watched, uh, I was up seven hours watching the Rays and the D-backs each play at least 12 innings with this extra, with the man on second. I just think it's just, it's just really, you know, Obviously, that was an anomaly. What happened um, a couple of days ago? We last season only two games went at least twelve innings, and on the same night we had at least two go twelve innings with the extra inning rule. 
And I just feel it extends the games. I think it's so easy. If you just score one run, it's so easy for the other team to score a run. You know, and I just, I like, I like, I'm, I'm a purist when it comes to that. I hate it in softball too. Softball does the same thing where they put a runner on sack and they get extra innings. I just hate it. I just think you're getting rid of it from the game. I absolutely hate it. We need to ban that, but that's going to probably stay, which I yeah. can't stand. I'm okay with the seven inning double headers and I'm okay with that. I'm like, that's fine with me. And then, um, and then if they, uh, the shifts have got to stay. I know in the minor leagues, they're testing banning shifts. That's where the infielders all have to stay on the dirt. That's yeah. awful. They need to keep. I mean, they basically just do not want the Rays. The Rays do something unique, and they immediately want to, <laughs> to change it. Like with the three batter minimum rule, I hate that rule too. That rule does not. It does not speed up the game any faster. Yeah, yeah. It does not. I absolutely hate it. I think it ruins. It ruins the strategy. I mean, all the managers didn't like that rule. And, you know, they think all these mini rules are going to speed it up, but the game is as long as it's ever been. I'm like, the games are actually like three and a half hours, which yeah. I don't care. I'm a baseball fan, so I could care less how long the games are. I'll still be entertained by them. But yeah, I'm the so same we, way. I'm also yeah. the same way. Yeah. Um, I'm more used to the runner on second now for some reason. Um, it's, like, it's, it's fine, like but, action, it's just, but it's just awful. I'm like, we did have the cool thing with Matt Peacock at the D-backs. Yeah. First MLB appearance as a reliever ends up having a bat. He gets a single, then ends up scoring all the way from first. <laughs> but um, I, are you for pitchers hitting? Do you or you want to go to Universal DH? I'm a Universal DH guy. I'm always going to be a Universal DH guy. I'm sorry. I just don't understand well, the point of having pitchers hit. They're probably going to get hurt, and they're probably not going to get a hit. They're going to get a hit once out of every 20 at bats, and it's just a total waste of our time when we can have more action and more intrigue when we have actual hitters hitting. I just don't understand the whole DH point. And I think the majority of baseball fans are actually for this, except for the diehard NL people who are like, Oh, we need the pitchers to hit because Bartolo Colon hit a home run once. And I just don't understand <laughs> that point. It doesn't make any sense to me. And I, I know I'm an American league guy, but at the same time, I just, I don't know. I, I we're putting pitchers in danger for no reason. And they're not doing anything with their bats anyway. And most of them don't even try. So like, what are we doing? What are we doing here? Yeah. I, I agree. I'm like, I normally, like, I'm not, a, I'm not a purist when it comes to the pitchers manning. Although Zach Gallen got injured in spring training. He yeah. injured his, blew out his elbow. He's on the IL here to start the season for the D-backs. Um, Glass now on opening day wanted a hit. He had back spasms, which was caused by him either running or batting. So he literally just held the bat. And so I understand it's really um, pointless. pointless and it hurts the players. You know, I'm a big pro players guy. I, I, I really have soured on Rob Manfred as a commissioner these yeah. last two years and so i'm all to, yeah to give more opportunities for players to sign elsewhere rather than just being limited to 15 al clubs when a lot of these al teams are tanking they don't want to sign a dh like a nelson cruz they don't want to sign like the braves re-signed ozuna but ozuna is not a great outfielder they much rather have him as a dh like they did yeah. last year yeah and so um and atlanta with the long-term deal they're basically banking there is going to be a a universal yeah. dh with the year the deal they gave him so yeah but yeah yeah my only baseball note i guess for now is let's not like overreact when like the orioles sweep their first series you know or like when the red sox you know sweep the rays and then lose after losing three straight to the orioles and i don't know we're gonna be seeing some weird stuff to start the season and i just want to remind everyone that akil badu is not the best player in baseball um, he's very fun and these rule five guys are making an impact more now than they have ever before. And that's really interesting actually with the game in general. Like 
I mean, I don't remember rule five guys ever really being a factor until like a year ago. And now this year it's exploded where guys are actually like contributing on day one as rule five guys, because they have to, right. Because they're, when you're picked as rule five guy, you have to be on the major league roster. But anyway, like let's not overreact to, you know, guys playing well to start the year, guys not playing well to start the year. Like, I mean, Shohei Otani is in the MVP right now. Like let's calm down for a second. So that's all I got to say for now. Are you an automated strike zone guy? Um, I'd like to see it. I mean, we, um, I don't know. I mean, we, I would be open to testing it out, but I lean toward you know, like, if you told me like you have to have this forever or never at all, I would probably pick never at all just because, you know, the art of framing the art of, you know, like, you know, human error. Like, I, I feel like that stuff, I, I kind of miss some of that stuff with the human error aspect at least. And within and, and I think framing is like an actual art and an actual skill that I want to still be in the game. You know, I don't want to just be like, electronic and i don't know like i almost like i've tweeted a couple times over the last few weeks just like get rid of replays in basketball because it's just like this is taking forever and it's not worth our time i'd rather get the call wrong and have the game keep on moving than you know get the call right and lose 20 minutes of my life and maybe that's just because i'm like a timely person but i've kind of like talked myself into this over the years and now i'm like fully in on just getting rid of replay reviews altogether. Um, but, you know, the VAR is a little different because it's at least quicker for the most part. Yeah. But until like, the refs have to run over. Like to, with the offsides. Yeah. Like the offsides is quick is the fair. premier league offsides rule is insane, uh, but that's not, a but that's, a, but that's a, that's insane for different reasons. Not yeah. just because of the time, you know, yeah. that's more insane because of like, if your finger is past yes. the line, you're offsides. And that doesn't make any sense to me. Like, I, I think that like the easiest solution for that to me is just like half, half body length. You know, if half of his body is on the wrong side, he's offsides. Yeah. If half of his body's on the right side or if more than half of his body's on the right side, then he's onsides. Like, why is this this complex? It should not be this complex. You know, Yeah. it really shouldn't be. And I just don't understand why someone's like, hand being offsides is like worth calling offsides. I don't get that. I don't understand because no one has explained this to me well enough. So I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I was watching uh, the Rays. The Rays were playing the Marlins and um, the Marlins catcher um, had called like a breaking ball and it said he threw a fastball. So he caught it. He like whiffed catching it, but it was in the strike zone. It should have been strike three and the inning was over. Uh, they ruled a ball because the catcher got crossed up catching it. And then Mike Zanino hit a two-run homer on the very next pitch. Wow. And that's when I really thought, I'm like, ooh, when they all made a strike zone, that would have been an out and the inning would have been over. But I agree with you. I think I'm more of a purist. I probably would stay away from the automated strike zone. Although, you know, in the postseason, it infuriates me. Like with C.B. Bucknor was calling the Rays Yankees, worst <laughs> umpire I mean, he's Bob Brenly's most hated umpire. He's my most hated umpire. He is just absolutely awful. I mean, Angel Hernandez always has terrible calls. Um, <laughs> so, um, so I'm like, there's always a couple of bad umpires when it comes to uh, yeah, st- balls and strikes. But, yeah. you know, I agree with keeping that. All right. Um, Sam, thanks so much for hopping on again to talk about a whole bunch of different things. Um, this, has been, this has been really awesome. Just sort of, you know, shooting the, shooting the crap again. 
with, <laughs> with, with sports and your Thanks flexibility. For me on. And your flexibility always amazes me. That you can just jump <laughs> from like women's basketball to the Champions League to like all this all this sort of other stuff as well. So thanks. Thanks so much, man. No problem. Thanks for having me on. Thank you all so much for listening to episode 34 of the Cookie Chronicles podcast. Don't forget to follow, subscribe, and spread the word about the show. Until next time, thanks for listening.